Howdy, folks. Welcome to A Green Way Forward, the podcast and live stream where we take a look at issues and actions from the specific perspective of the Green Party and the four pillars of the International Green Party movement, peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. On this program, Michael O'Neill, executive producer, and I will be speaking with Sophia Burns, a writer for Gods and Radicals and a revolutionary organizer in the Pacific Northwest. Sophia, welcome to A Green Way Forward. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sophia, uh, you came across my attention uh, with a really provocative article, and Michael O'Neill will make sure to drop that uh, into the comments section right away, uh, where you really outline a strategic idea of revolution itself, but specifically forcing social change agents to take a look at the Democratic Party. So I'm going to jump right in uh, and ask you some questions that I uh, had around this article that you wrote. Specifically, you write that the Democrats are a tightly organized party with strong central discipline. I got to tell you, that flies in the face of most of what we hear from uh, the bloviating class. So why do you say that the Democrats are tightly organized with strong central discipline? Well, um, talking about that, there's, I think, one basic principle I want to bring to that that, honestly, one should probably bring to, uh, to everything. And that's why when you're looking at someone, something, and trying to analyze what it is, you shouldn't look at what it says about itself. You shouldn't look at to, uh, what conventional to everything. Says and that's why is. instead, you have to look at what it actually materially is on the ground. And if you look at the Democratic Party, you don't see what conventional wisdom says. You don't see this, you know, barely organized, can't get their crap together, big tent coalition or ballot line. What you see is this hardcore of highly dedicated, highly disciplined people. Most of them either work for Democratic Party organizations directly or more commonly are hired as staff or leadership of um, these so-called progressive nonprofits. And one of the arguments I make is that most of those supposedly independent activist organizations are actually better understood as front groups for the Democratic Party itself. But what you have is this hardcore of usually full-time activists and their job is to run these groups and run political campaigns and issue campaigns. And um, what I've found is that on the ground, they all stay within this very narrowly defined set of politics and set of political practices. So that's what I mean by a tightly disciplined um, organization. So in essence, you're saying that the Democratic Party operates as actually a cadre party organization. It absolutely does. And, uh, you know, when I say, when we say cadre party, that's drawing from some traditional Marxist, traditional Leninist ideas. Um, and basically the idea there is that you have this hardcore of what Lenin called professional revolutionaries and they make a substantial commitment. A lot of the time they might be paid functionaries of the organization, but what they do is 
carry out the political line, the political position of their party when engaging in these, these larger, more mass-based campaigns, in this case through what I argue are the Democratic Party's front groups. And so I just want to, Sophia, I just want to make sure that I'm clear and that our viewers and listeners are clear. So what you're actually suggesting is that between the Democratic Party formal structures, the independent contractors, specifically with the Democratic Party, but also all of these, the nonprofit industrial complex, there must then be literally hundreds of thousands of paid Democratic Party operatives, according to your analysis. Is that fair? I think that's completely fair. You don't get to have the oldest capitalist political party in the world that survives for hundreds of years, that survives being on the losing side of a civil war, unless you're able to develop this very strong, very extensive structure. And the structure is large. The structure is massive. Um, the nonprofit industrial complex is huge. And of course, it is organizationally speaking, not as independent as it claims to be, but I would say it is subordinated to this unified political stance of, you know, the Democratic Party. But the thing is, though, is that it sustains this massive subculture around it. And probably most of the people listening to this podcast are, are going to have a notion of what I mean there, right? It's the people who go out and wave signs and go to activist social events and, you know, network with each other. And the thing is, is that you don't get people doing that in that kind of even semi-coordinated way unless you have this very coherent, very unified set of organizations and institutions. And okay, so Sophia, we, we have a coherent infrastructure of institutions, but I now want to sort of shift gears a little bit because you also talk about a social and political base. So can you walk the listeners, viewers through that concept? Absolutely. So when I say a base, I don't mean, you know, some random collection of isolated individuals who might happen to share one opinion or other. Um, I give a couple of examples in the article, and I think that one of the most telling ones is the, the religious right, the Christian right in this country. And is that a whole bunch of people who just happen in their private lives to have this evangelical and right-wing ideology? Well, no, it isn't. What you have are these churches and these church-affiliated charities and denominations and everything. And it's through those organizations that the large number of people who uh, constitute the rank and file, so to speak, of the Christian right in this example are able to come together and act in a coherent way and, you know, carry out this unified way of running their collective life together. And that kind of structure, that kind of mass grouping of people through these institutions acting in this coordinated way, that's what I mean by a social base. That's what I mean by a political base. I don't just, you know, the voters for a political party. It's more than that. 
Sophia, this is Michael jumping in if I can, David, if that's all right. Um, I, I'm hoping if either in, in this next bit or, or David, if there was something that you had a direct response to, some of the aims, right, of this coherent structure that you talk about, because that's where I feel like your article at Gods and Radicals, which we have posted a link to in our comment stream, you talk about like they have this core program, um, which includes, uh, that I think is very relevant to our viewers and listeners, opposition to expanding ballot access for minor parties. Right. And uh, and a capitalist economy with some regulation, but very little state ownership and, uh, you know, collaboration between the government and businesses for, quote, job creation and and some social services provision. And when you go through that that list that you wrote in your brilliant article, it makes everything kind of crystallize and go, oh, right. So there's this kind of tailwind be behind certain issues when the Democrat apparatus gets behind it. And that's when we see people flooding the streets and all kinds of professionally printed signs and huge marches on Washington. But then for those other issues that are just as, as important, but they don't serve the Democratic Party duopoly role, those stay in the margins. And it's just kind of those um, noble fuel who are kind of toiling away, trying to push that boulder up the hill without any of the institutional support that we see behind some of these others, these other issues. Um, so uh, that's something I think would be uh, interesting to unpack for our, our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that what's really telling as a very good example of that, you look back 15 years ago when you had, you know, George W. Bush preparing for the invasion of Iraq. And uh, 15 years ago, the month after next, you had, you know, what was the biggest single demonstration happening on one day in human history. That was millions and millions of people across the world. But of course, over the next few years, you ended up having um, all of those those people with that desire to oppose this war kind of consolidated into, you know, the John Kerry campaign into Obama eventually. Um, and there's something really interesting if you look at that. Now, you might have had groups at that point like uh, Answer Coalition or Not In Our Name or whoever saying, well, we oppose all of the wars of um, the U.S. empire, but those that was not the direction that ultimately that political opposition coalesced instead it was well this war isn't the right one this war isn't being done in the right way but what kind of gets obscured by that is the fact that you know at the base the position was still the united states has the right and obligation to engage in these wars to um protect and promote capitalism across the world. And it's that deeper unstated agreement that you can see between, you know, the Bernie wing and the Hillary wing of the Democratic Party. They differ in the details of how the core program should be carried out, but that, you know, shouldn't prevent us from seeing the fact that at the end of the day, it is this core core program, this acceptable spectrum of ideology and politics within the Democratic Party, and you don't see anybody stepping outside of that and having a future in the nonprofit industrial complex or democratic politics. 
Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. We're speaking with Sophia Burns, a writer with Gods and Radicals and a revolutionary organizer in the Pacific Northwest. And if you're enjoying this program, I want to invite you, if you're watching live on a live stream, to make sure to share this uh, on your own list. And if you're listening on a podcast, make sure to share it with family and friends. Remember that we're building a network here. Uh, we get somewhere between five, seven, sometimes over 10,000 people who are participating in this conversation and dialogue because we're committed to building an actual institutional base that is willing to challenge the corporatist, militarist, imperialist power structure of this country and build a new society in a new world. Sophia, I want to drill down here for just a moment because in so many conversations with folks that I consider friends and allies uh, and even comrades, uh, the entire drama around Ber Bernie versus Hillary was used as if it was something that really underscored a deep schism happening within the Democratic Party. Are you saying that you don't think that there was actually a, uh, a real debate between uh, Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters? Well, I think what you saw there was a faction fight, absolutely, but there's a difference between a faction fight and a fundamental schism, as, as you say. And what comes to my mind is um, there's a friend of mine that, you know, I work with closely who lived in, uh, in New York City during the primaries last year, and he told me about how um, at the time he was, you know, more aligned with the Bernie or conventional activist side of things, but how he was involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign there in Brooklyn and a whole lot of, you know, prominent Democrats there were really given that the cold shoulder. But the thing is, that wasn't ideological and only to a certain extent was it organizational? The way my friend explained it was, well, the Bernie campaign was, you know, taking orders out of Vermont, out of the political machine that Bernie Sanders had built up there in the Democratic Party over the last few decades. And that kind of thing is what we were seeing play out on a national level. Because, of course, whenever you have a large organization, um, especially one that does have access to real power, of course you're going to see factions form and of course you're going to see them compete with each other for influence within that organization but there is a you know category difference between different factions within the democrat cadre structure competing with each other on the one hand versus you know two completely different animals happening to share a ballot line and a lot of people i think look and think they're seeing the latter when actually it's just the former that's going on. It's just that internal faction fight for influence instead of, you know, a deeper actual division there. You know, Sophia, you really uh, provoked a lot of comments in, uh, on the live stream. I, I want to take a, a few. Don Neptune Adams writes in to say, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Democratic Party employs activists and distracts them from creating real change. Uh, Michael writes in, though, to say, look, I'd like us to get into a conversation around strategy. Uh, 
And I want to say that we are going to get to that, but I also, I think it's really important that we actually uh, really understand this idea of the Democratic Party has grown an entire community and social scene around those institutions. Uh, that is that they're shaping the social and cultural fabric uh, of, of folks who are really, you know, they're good people who actually do in fact want to transform society. Uh, but the Democratic Party through its uh, front groups uh, are actually preventing them from succeeding. I mean, I, I want to ask Sophia, am I being too harsh? Not even slightly. Um, <clears throat> now, what you have, I appreciate you're talking about that social and political scene growing up around these activist organizations. Um, you end up with a situation where, like, if you want to, if you want to get really serious about, you know, conventional activism, you can, even if you don't get a job doing it, you can go to all the protests you want. If you live in a bigger city, you can go to um, all kinds of social or cultural events or, you know, readings or concerts or whatever. But beyond that, people immerse themselves in that kind of activity and then they form these these friendship networks. That's the people they socialize with, you know, an activist and everybody they know is also an activist and they talk about the activist community and they talk about the activist lifestyle. And I think that we need to break away from that particular community because at the end of the day, there's, and, uh, and this is getting a little bit into strategy, but there's what you might call the chasm between protest and power. And, you know, you can protest all you want and you can socialize with people all you want and, you know, have all of these ideas that, you know, are great. And you can be very sincere about that. And you can feel like, you know, I'm making my voice heard. I'm really doing something. But the fact is that the only way that conventional activism, protest and whatnot is able to exercise any actual power over how collective life is carried out is through the Democratic Party, through elected politicians, because there is no mechanism in a sine wave and protest to actually change any part of the structure or operation of society. When you're doing that, all you can do is persuade a politician to do what you want or, you know, at best, replace them with a different one. Um, you know, Sophia, it reminds me of uh, imagining that you want to get rich and you see a book that says, uh, read this book to get rich. And you think, oh gosh, I'd like to get rich. So you buy the book and you read the book. And what it says is uh, work your ass off to get somebody else rich and then ask them for some money. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, the, the notion that the Democratic Party is going to somehow actually transform society, I think, is just fundamentally flawed because it's devoid of what I would call <clears throat> a genuine power analysis. You know, one of the things that I say all the time is we have to understand the difference between goals, strategies, and tactics. Goals are the things that we actually want to achieve or attain. Strategy is the plan to get there. The tactics are the things that we want to do. The way you write it in your article is strategy follows goals, tactics follow strategy. And I really appreciate, and I want to uh, really get to this. For revolutionaries, you say, 
The goal is to literally overthrow the government. The goal is to create new social and political and economic institutions. I'm going to tell you, Sophia, as a Green Party organizer, uh, those are my goals. I want to literally recreate this society. I don't think that we can tinker at the margins with a capitalist economy or a capitalist society. I think that we have to actually create, and whether you call it socialism or communism or economic democracy, whatever you call it, at the end of the day, it's got to actually be completely new institutions. So I'm going to use this way, this opportunity uh, to actually ask you the, what you talk about. You say the working class must become a well-organized social force, so well-organized that it can exercise power to assert its own interests. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because um for people who may have been following some of the, the debates internal to the, the socialist left these days, um, be they within DSA or wherever else, you might have seen some discussion of base building as a concept. And, you know, I think that's great, building institutions and whatnot. But the thing is, is that, you know, you can do that and build a base for any goal whatsoever. And, you know... I agree with you. I don't want to do that for these reformist goals. I don't want to ameliorate the worst excesses of the capitalist system because the capitalist system is itself organized exploitation on a global scale, right? And, you know, that means that we have to, you know, think about it in um, this way where you're not just asking for what you want from the government, but you have to look at, you know, this existing government for what it is and what it so is. So, Sophia, is if I can ask you, can yes. can we hone in on that concept of, of a base, right? So when you talk about building a base in this context, what do you mean by a base and what are some of the activities that a group, large or small, might engage in to build a functioning base as the groundwork for the kind of change that we're discussing? Well, um, by a base, I mean this set of of institutions and you know those have got to be autonomous not just from the democratic party but from the entire extended state structure right and that can take a whole lot of different forms it's not always going to look the same way i can think of um there's the philadelphia tenants union that a group called philly socialists which is you know getting some traction aligned with this space building strategy has built and you know that focuses on promoting the interests of tenants against landlords through direct confrontation um there's a project in seattle called q patrol that you know organizes on a similar community basis to address hate violence against lgbt people not by calling for more police or whatever but by engaging the entire community in this direct collective self-defense. And those are just two examples, but basically what you want to do is you can start by getting together a um, you know group of like-minded organizers who want to break out of the activist subculture and conventional activism. And you got to look at the, the specific conditions of where you live. You have to know your city. You have to know your neighborhood. You have to go out and knock on doors and talk to strangers and get a sense of 
what people's needs are, what people's desires are, and what kind of stuff people are going to respond to and get involved with. And once you get a sense of that, you pick a specific project, and then you do as much outreach as you can to get as many residents in, you know, this target constituency area involved as you can. And you build, you know, durable organizational structures through which that can be pursued. You, um, so Sophia, the thing that I'm, I'm hearing in common in some of your examples before I, I turn it back to David uh, and things that, you know, we hear like from our, our friend Kali Akuno um, is, is as you were talking about actually finding out what people's needs are and bringing people together to to meet those needs, whether it's uh, collective action against uh, a landlord or or, you know, creating a resource together that is otherwise, you know, not being provided to the community. And and that is really adding like direct value and support to people's lives right in a concrete direct way that is number one um helping people out and number two demonstrating to people the kind of power that they can flex that they can exercise when they work collectively and through that struggle and through that you know they they get a sense of victory and they and and get a a sense of of their own strength um does that sound uh, re resonant to you know what what you're describing or what you're hoping people get out of this? Well, um, amen to that. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because what you have to do, you have to deliver. You have to actually be making a material difference in people's lives. And you know, you could be doing that through charity or through you know trying to push some bill or other through the legislature but that's not the best way to do it the way that you want to do it is by getting people involved like you said in this collective way to um engage in what you might call both a politics of construction and a politics of confrontation and a politics of construction is where you build stuff like a mutual aid infrastructure or worker co-ops or what have you so that people can meet each other's material and social needs directly instead of having to, you know, get permission or collaboration from capitalists or the government. And then the politics of confrontation, that's where you organize people to directly confront the people who are oppressing them and to weaken the power of that oppression. And that might look like organizing in a workplace, um, going on strike, that kind of thing. It might look like a community self-defense, which includes usually, um, you know, policing the police, that kind of thing. Um, but you need the construction and the confrontation. And, you know, if you can provide those things in a way that really incorporates and includes as many people in your target base as possible, then you're offering them something real and people and, respond to that. And what you're describing to my understanding and my study, uh, Sophia, is you're describing the, the concept of dual power where you are like creating institutions, organizations to actually meet our needs in a very tangible way where we are both competing with and ultimately challenging and, and contesting for governmental power. Uh, which is something that I uh, am encouraging Greens to actually come to terms with. Uh, I absolutely, of course, believe in engaging in electoral politics. Uh, I managed Jill Stein's campaign, uh, the, St the Stein Baraka campaign. I ran for president myself. 
you know, I, I run low, I help to manage uh, local campaigns. I've helped to elect a lot of greens to office, but I also engage in these kinds of dual power activities. So, uh, and in fact, I do engage, and this is where we might differ, uh, Sophia, I still do engage in expressive uh, protest politics because that's where people are. Uh, but I don't make any mistake uh, uh, that I'm actually accomplishing anything other than going where people are to engage them in conversation. Uh, I do want to make sure uh, that we uh, pick up, because Robert actually writes in to, to remind us of Pete Seeger's millions of small things. Uh, uh, and I think that one of the things that I appreciated, Sophia, about what you were outlining is uh, the, the reminder, even though you did not specifically reference the great African uh, theorist and revolutionary Amical Calabrar, but he said, and I, I, this really sticks with me, never forget that people are not fighting for abstract ideas in their heads. They're fighting to have food for themselves and their children. They're fighting for clean air and water. They're fighting for real things. And we've got to actually come to terms with that and actually get very concrete about fighting for the kind of reforms that actually make people's lives tangibly better without becoming mere reformists. In other words, being non-reformist non reformers, if, if that makes sense to you. Well, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned a couple things there. And as soon as you, you started to say Amilcar Cabral's name, uh, say that quote, because that's something that I try to remember and think of a whole lot as well. So I'm glad that you, that you gave Cabral a shout out there. Um, but I'm also really glad that you said dual power. Now, in the historical sense, what's a dual power situation? Well, that's where you have the you know official government but you also have these organs of of self-government emerging from you know the working class the oppressed people that are capable of you know trying to exercise sovereignty trying to exercise you know social and political and economic power against and to the exclusion of the official state and of course that state of affairs can't last forever um so there ends up being this direct conflict and confrontation, and one of those will eventually destroy the other. And when we talk about the dual power strategy, we mean building up these kind of institutions every day in small ways, building into bigger ways and bigger ways, until eventually we aim to get to a dual power situation like that. Um, and... Uh, you no, know, I, I want to... Uh, uh, Bruce, Bruce writes in to say, uh, plug in where you fit in, which I really think is fantastic. You know, I, I also would be remiss, uh, Sophia, if I did not take uh, the opportunity to share with listeners and viewers that Sophia Burns uh, is not a paid Democrat who is part of the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, she makes her living uh, through intellectual work, uh, through uh, as a writer and a thinker and an organizer with Gods and Radicals. She also has a Patreon account. So, Sophia, I'm going to ask you to, to let our viewers, listeners know uh, how they can support your, uh, your work. Well, um, I think that, well, first off, thank you for, um, for, you know, telling the listeners about the Patreon and whatnot. That's always enormously appreciated because... 
so long as capitalism exists, you got to eat, you got to make rent. Um, but I think that the, the single biggest thing that I would like to ask of everybody hearing this, go out and start building a base where you live. Go out and start forming a, um, you know, pluralistic revolutionary organization that can start building these institutions one at a time in an effective and a strategic way. Because this isn't something that can just happen in, you know, one city or a couple cities or a couple states. This is something that has to be happening everywhere, all over. And, you know, literally everybody who is hearing this right now can be part of that. If they go out and get together with a few other like-minded people, and, you know, start connecting with people, start doing that outreach, start identifying those, those um, relevant programs, start building those institutions, and start doing that independent of the state and the nonprofit and the democratic structure, democratic party structure. That is how you can help. You can build the movement because it's, like you said, it's not about me. It's not about, you know, a career for me or any individual. It's about collective power. It's about building up power for our class. And I, you know, want to personally appeal to every person listening to this. You can do that. Please do that. There, there's always plenty more to say, but, you know, while, you know, I may agree to disagree about the, um, about the electoralism issue, at the end of the day, I just want to reiterate that call to, you know, start doing this kind of work. Start practicing this dual power strategy, practicing the space building, because, you know, at the end of the day, ideas are great, words are great, matter is what matters. <laughs> is, you know, the very concrete, physical material, social, economic relationships um, that, you know, a society is made of. And we have the power to transform those at first in small ways and eventually in, you know, a real big way. But we can't do that unless we start doing it. The way to get where we want to go is to start going there. So that's that would be my parting thought there. And I tell you. people all the time, the way you do something that you're not prepared to do is you just do it. And at the end of the day, it's going to be up to us to actually do it for ourselves. Ain't nobody going to fund our liberation but ourselves, and ain't nobody going to get us free except for us. So I appreciate Sophia Burns of Gods and Radicals for this conversation. I appreciate Michael O'Neill, the executive producer of The Green Way Forward. And I appreciate you, the viewer slash listener, that are participating in this conversation, participating in this movement, and as always with a hat tip, uh, to Gil Scott Heron, the revolution may not be televised, but it will be brought to you over sources of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis, and a green way forward aspires to be one of those. Thanks so much. Keep on keeping on. Peace. Thank you.